I invite us to remain standing for the reading of the gospel lesson this morning. It is taken from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Here now a reading of the good news. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. It is a wonderful, beautiful day. It's good to see you all here and to worship with you and glorify God together. And as we um, enter into this new sermon series called Five, we're considering and studying chapter five of Matthew. And uh, we're going to kick it off with, with these first 12 verses. What better place to start than with verse one? But I want to kind of give you some context, some background Chapter 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is from chapter 5 through chapter 7 of Matthew. So keep that in, in mind as we make our way through. That This is a, a long teaching. There are five major discourses in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and this is one of those five. It's a powerful piece of teaching. It's powerful for us, the church. It has been said that the Gospel of Matthew is the church's handbook. So keep that in mind. That as we consider what Matthew was trying to do, is he's trying to instruct, to teach, to inform and lead the early church and how to be the church. How to make decisions, how to live, how to act, how to believe and think. And he's using this Sermon on the Mount, these teachings by Jesus, as a, as a way and a means to teach the church. Those early hearers, those first hearers, of the kingdom of heaven and us today as we are the church we are the hearers and bearers of the kingdom of heaven so this is a interesting and powerful teaching but we really kind of understand what is happening what Matthew's doing we got to back up just a little bit and put this passage in context you know we we need to back up to chapter 4 to see what is happening. Because all we know right now in chapter 5 is as Jesus has seen some crowds and he's ascended the mountain. And he has sat down and he's opened his mouth and he's begun to teach the disciples who have followed after him. But what's going on? In chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, we get an idea. Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. 
So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. There's this mass, this mob, this throng of people who have gathered in Galilee to see and to hear and maybe be touched by this young rabbi, this man who speaks with authority, who teaches and heals and cures. Word has spread. His fame has gone before him. And people want to know. People want to see for themselves. They want to hear for themselves. They want to experience what this man is doing. What he's saying. And so we have this understanding now that people are coming from all over. People who are very much like those early disciples from Galilee. They're farmers. They're fishermen. They're, they're working class folk. That's who they are. They're, they're, their hands are dirty and hard and, and rough. And they're there. They want to see. They want to hear. They bring with them their sick, their hurt, their griefs. There are those who have come down from or come up from Judea and Jerusalem, the seat of power of, of the religious and the economic and political power that is all Jewishness and, and of the empire of Rome. They've come. They're curious. They want to know who he is, what he's doing, what he, what he says and what he means. There are those who have crossed the river from over the Jordan, those who are far away from any seat of power, far away from any similarities to those who are from Galilee or from Judea. They are very different people. People from the Decapolis have come. Greeks, people who are from a different culture, they've come. They want to see, they want to hear who Jesus is, what he's doing. So we pick up in chapter 5, and we have Jesus traveling all through Galilee, where he's from, what the area he knows, the people he knows, and people know him. They know what he's like. And then as he looks around, as he's traveling, as he's teaching and preaching, healing and curing, he sees this great throng of people wherever he goes. More and more people pressing in. And so then we we're told he, well, he makes his way up this mountain. And there he sits down like a rabbi and his disciples, his students, they gather around him at his feet to be taught. And we also have the image of this great throng of people who are within earshot. Keep that image in your mind. Because when Matthew talks about the disciples in this case, and in many cases, the disciples are a way of speaking about the church. The church has gone up the mountain with Jesus. The church has gathered around Jesus to hear him speak. To hear him teach what it means to be the church. What is it like to hear the kingdom of heaven, to bear the kingdom of heaven 
to experience the kingdom of heaven. And while the churches gather there, listening and learning and understanding and finding ways to practice and to live this kingdom of heaven life, there's the world, those throngs of people overhearing this teaching, overhearing this instruction, overreading the handbook. That's a powerful image for us. Don't lose that in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus teaches his collected, gathered disciples, he's teaching the church. He's teaching us what it means to be, what it means to live, what it means to hear and to hold, to experience the kingdom of heaven. Keep that in, keep that hold. Don't let that go. Now, when I think about these Beatitudes, which is a very familiar passage for most of us here, we, we've heard the Beatitudes. We've talked about those before. Sunday school classes, Bible studies, sermons. Who knows where? Any number of places. We've heard the Beatitudes. One thing I want us to also keep in mind as we begin to talk about these Beatitudes and consider what they mean. I, I go back to a particular time in my life. I was 16 years old. This was some time ago. But I think back when I was 16, I had my first job. It was a part-time job. After, after school, I would show up at A&W X-Ray. It was an X-Ray supply company. They sold X-Ray equipment and supplies and film and chemicals. And I, was in, I worked in the warehouse. I was there to help mix these big vats of chemicals for x-ray equipment. I, I, I was there to rotate the stock of x-ray film and all the supplies that go with it. And one of my jobs was to make deliveries. And we had a van and we had this little uh, Datsun pickup. Remember Datsuns? They were before Nissan. And we, we had the King Cab there for the A&W x-ray. It was blue, had a camper shell on it. It was sweet. It was, a, it was a manual transmission, and um, I, I was 16 years old, and, and that was my delivery truck. And they, I would show up at 3.30 in the afternoon, and they'd say, we've got a delivery. You need to go to, um, first you've got to go to, to Madison, Florida, which was 50 miles away. And then you need to go up to Valdosta, which was another 45 miles away. So I was 95 miles away from from Tallahassee, a 16-year-old, been driving for three months. <laughs> Who does that? I didn't always have a map. Sometimes they would just give me written instructions or, or oral instructions. You, you're going to take I-10 east for 50 miles. You're going to turn, take, get off the interstate in Madison. You're going to go to the hospital there. It's right off of 90. You'll cross 90 after that hospital, and you'll take US-41 all the way up to Valdosta, and there you'll find the hospital on College Avenue or whatever that street was called. And that's where you're going to go. When you get there, go towards the emergency room. You'll see a delivery uh, where you back in and make your deliveries. Sure. Got it. I start driving, and I'm 16 years old. I've got my, my, my chips and my drink and i got a radio. And so I missed the first turn. <laughs> and so what I would do is I would, I'd say, well, I missed my turn. I know I've got to go north. And so I would find the next available road that went north. And I said, that looks like a decent road. I'll take that road. 
and I go north. And I say, well, I've gone too far east. I've got to go west a little bit. So let me find a road that goes back to the west. Well, you know how roads are. You can look a little bit. And you can see the turn, the first turn, and then it just disappears. Who knows where that road goes? That was beyond my 16-year-old mind. I just wanted the first, I wanted the turn to get me to the, the right direction. If I was going in the right direction, eventually I'll land. So I come to these decisions. Do I take this road or do I take that road? Just begin to sound familiar. Is there a poem that kind of comes to mind for you? Maybe Robert Frost. A road not taken. Robert Frost has a lot for us to hear today. I want you to hear this poem again. Probably his most famous poem. The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair. And having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. That's a wonderful poem. And for most of my understanding, and for my whole life, I have understood the importance of this poem to be about that regret of not taking the other road. What would it have meant? Where would it have led? And many of us probably take the poem in that direction. But Robert Frost was asked about this poem, why he wrote it. What's the point? Many years ago, he wrote it in 1915 and sent it to his friend. His friend was named Edward Thomas. Edward Thomas was a companion of of Robert Frost and they would hike through the countryside. And as they hiked, they would come to a A fork in the road. They'd have to make a decision. This road or that road. Robert Frost used to laugh at his friend Edward because Edward would always be upset. Always regret not taking the road they didn't take. Always wonder, what if? And so Robert Frost wrote this little poem, folded it and put it in an envelope and sent it to his friend Edward. As a joke. And Edward didn't get it. So he wrote Robert Frost back. It took six letters for Robert Frost and Edward Thomas to come to some mutual understanding of what this poem is about. For Robert Frost, the the, the key to this, this poem is the notion that you can only take one. You're one traveler, and you can't take both paths simultaneously. You can't experience that. It's just impossible. So 
So maybe Robert Frost has a little something for us to say about the Beatitudes. When Jesus, sitting there on that mountaintop with his disciples gathered around him, with the church gathered around to hear and to see, he lays out this plan. He lays out an understanding that declares it can't take both paths at the same time. The cultural understanding of that day was that to be blessed was to be wealthy, to be powerful, to have status, to have position, to have your bellies full and your wine jars full. And Jesus takes that understanding and says to be blessed is to be meek. To be blessed is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To be blessed is to be a peacemaker. To be blessed is to mourn. To hurt. He takes that understanding, the cultural understanding of the church. And he turns it upside down. And he says you have to have one way. That's a powerful image for us. a powerful understanding for us. Whatever our understanding is of being blessed, know that God and the kingdom of heaven has its own understanding of being blessed. And it means that we all, we all are blessed and can be blessed if and when, if and when we understand ourselves as broken, as needing, as thirsty, as hungry, as humble, as meek, as having no power and no position and no status. And if we do, we can sympathize and empathize and understand with those who do not. Jesus teaches the church, the Beatitudes, and the world overhears. Today, our challenge is to hear again the Beatitudes and to let the world overhear. Let the world have a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. Let the world become curious. Let the, let the world gather nearby and experience the blessing of the kingdom of heaven. Today we have celebrated and dedicated and blessed these shawls, a powerful ministry of our church. Powerful ministry. It's a, it's, it's a simple idea done with incredibly talented people who offer all of themselves in their prayers, in their time, and in their care for someone they may not even know. Some citizen of the world. Somebody from across the Jordan. Somebody from a Decapolis. Somebody from Syria. 
somebody completely not like us. But in these shawls, we declare to the world that they are remembered, that they are cared for, they are prayed for, and that they are blessed. That's a powerful ministry. In a few moments, we will gather at the table and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the world will press in on us. And hopefully and prayerfully, they will overhear the love and the grace that is found in the kingdom of heaven. No matter how wealthy, no matter how healthy, no matter how broken we see ourselves or others, we are blessed because God has blessed us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.